Well, as Blair said, it is great to be back together again. Uh, so many of us have been away, and uh, it's wonderful to be together as one family under Christ, singing praises to Him. We are going through the book of Romans, and over the last several months, we've been in Romans 6 and 7, and what we've said consistently is, if you have not died with Christ, then you are not saved. If you have not been raised with Christ, then you are not saved. That the gospel proclaims that, yes, we are justified by grace through faith. Yes, we believe in the promises of God, that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die and come back to life. And if we believe that, that will be counted to us as righteousness. We will have a perfectly righteous standing legally before the throne of God. But more than that, after we get past chapter 5 and into chapter 6 and 7, the gospel goes much further. We have to actually die. It's not just about believing, it's about dying. We have to be united with Christ in a mysterious but actual way so that when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, we died with him. And that death was applied to us when we came to faith. This obviously raises questions when we talk like this. Well, are we saved? Am I saved? And as your pastor, I know I've been in conversation with many of you where the preaching has compelled you to ask the question, am I really saved? Not just do I believe in the promises of God, but have I died with Christ? Have I been raised to newness of life with Christ? Christ? And that's the right question. That's the question that if you haven't asked that, at least in passing, you should ask that question of yourself. You should be asking yourself, have I died and come back to life? Am I a new creature? Am I a new creation? Do I truly have a new heart? Or am I in some counterfeit conversion? This week and next, we're going to be asking the question, how can we know that we are saved? Because that's exactly where Paul goes. After challenging us through chapters 6 and 7, he gets to chapter 8, and before he gets to all the glory that is to come to us, he's beginning very pastorally to answer the question for us, how can you know that you're saved? How can you know that this is true of you? How can you know that you have definitively been sanctified? Meaning, you've died and come back to life. How do you know that you will never die again, at least in your inner man? How do you know that when your body stops working, you haven't died? You've just transitioned to a new and better way of living in the presence of Christ in the heavenly realm. So that's what we're going to look at. So this comes, I think, at a welcome time for many of us. So for those of you who have been asking this question, I I pray that this week and next, one of two things will come true for you. Either the Holy Spirit will give you a solid assurance of your salvation, or the Holy Spirit will convict you that no, indeed, you are not saved. That you you do need to repent of your sins. You need to die with Christ. And if you find yourself in that part of the application of this week and next, then come and talk to me. And by God's grace, I can walk you through. I want to start with an illustration. How might I prove to you that I have an apple tree in my backyard? It's just an illustration, but I think it's a helpful one. 
Well, I'd just take you to my backyard. I'd say, there's the apple tree, right? I would just show you the apple tree. But what if I took you to my backyard, and I pointed, I said, that's an apple tree. He says, no, it's not. It looks like an apple tree. It's shaped like an apple tree, but it's not an apple tree. How would I prove to you that it's an apple tree? There's only one way, the fruit. The only way that I can definitively prove to you that I have an apple tree in my backyard is not even to take you to my backyard and show you a tree, but to show you the fruit of that tree. Apple trees produce apples. So if I bring you a peach or a pear, that's not an apple tree. John the Baptist in Matthew 3.10 says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We don't preach like that in Canada very much. But John preached that way on the banks of the Jordan River to the religious establishment. He says, look, if you don't have good fruit, God's going to cut you down. And when he cuts you down, he's going to throw you into the fire. It's a warning. How do you know if you're saved? Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. How can we know that we're saved? There's only one way, objectively, and then next week we're going to look at some subjective metrics. That is, objectively, we should, in a family of faith, be able to objectively look at one another's lives and say, I see fruit of salvation, or I don't see fruit of salvation. And no, that is not breaking Christ's command that we are not to judge. To discern with one another, the fruit of salvation is a part of being in a church with other people. That we are to affirm the fruit of salvation and repentance in one another's lives. Or we are to very lovingly, very carefully, very gracefully come alongside and say, I don't see the fruit. That's what this is for. This is, that's what we do in the church. We're not, we're not on mission for Christ alone. We're not solo agents. We're not the only ones who can discern if we are saved. In fact, it's your responsibility. It's your duty as a member of this church, to be able to affirm the fruitfulness in the lives of brothers and sisters in this church. Or, to say, I don't see it. And that's love. Because, do I need to read it again? Matthew 3.10, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you see a tree that's not bearing good fruit, you can either allow that tree to persist in its drought to be cut down and thrown into the fire or in love you can say I don't see the fruit we're going to see Paul addresses the same concept in today's text let's read this text Romans chapter 8 would you please stand while you open there today's text is verses 5 through 13 but I'm going to read from chapter 725 8.13 This is the word of God beginning in Romans 7.25 Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh I serve the law of sin 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. God, help us to understand this text. Help me to preach it and to sit under the preaching of it. And I pray for everyone here, including myself, and all who might listen to this sermon that your Holy Spirit would either grant to us assurance of our salvation or convict us of a counterfeit salvation so that we might truly be saved, serve the law of God with our minds, and live according to the Spirit. Because to live according to the flesh means death. Lord, I pray that by your mercy we would live according to the Spirit and find eternal life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Very quickly, review of the big picture of Romans, because we're right in the middle of Romans. If you're joining us just today, you just have to realize we're, we're eight chapters in, and you need those first seven chapters to understand where we are. Chapters 1 to 3 are about wrath and propitiation, that no one has an excuse. We all know deep down that there's a God in heaven, but we have chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator, and so his wrath is being poured out now and at the final judgment. But he sent forth Jesus to satisfy the wrath of God. If we link our lives with his, God's wrath will pass over us. Chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 and 5 are about justification. That is, if we believe in all of the promises of God, it will be counted to us that we are righteous as Christ is righteous. We, we will not just be uh, freed from our sin debt, but we will be given an infinite 
balance or an infinite credit to our account of perfect righteousness in the throne room of God. Chapter 6 and 7 deals with sanctification. That is, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more deeply, that we have to be united with Christ so that there's a change in our very nature. We have to die and be born again. And if that happens, there's, there's something that's changed in our constitution. Our, our, our inner man or our heart or our mind has been made righteous and holy in his nature. Talk a little bit more about that. Chapter 8, where we are now, continues chapters 6 and 7, and that's glorification. The, the goal of sanctification is to become like Christ in our nature, not just in our standing. Our standing is already like Christ. That's chapters 4 and 5, but now we have to become like Christ in our nature. That's 6, 7, and 8, and that will come to fruition. That's what we'll see before we're done chapter 8. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul talks about election. Why, why is this gospel for some and not for all? Why did God choose Israel, not other nations? And then for the rest of the book, chapters 12 through 16, in light of all of this gospel truth, live like this. So chapters 1 through 11, orthodoxy, this is what we ought to believe. This is what we have to believe as Christians. Chapters 12 through 16, if you believe chapters 1 to 11, this will be true of your life increasingly. You won't be perfect, but increasingly you will begin to look like Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So that's the book of Romans. We're right in glorification. Now last week, Blair Hansen did a brilliant job of preaching uh, Romans 7, 25 to 8, 4. If you haven't heard that sermon, you have to hear it. And I'm not going to re-preach it today, but I do have to sort of review it because so many of us missed it. But I, I can't re-preach it. It was excellently done. Thank you, Blair, for preaching. Go back and listen to it. And, and on that note, as we're continuing through the book of Romans, it's, it's sort of like math or learning a new language. If you miss too much, you won't catch up. Yet you have to, everything builds in the book of Romans. So if you've missed one or three or five sermons, Go back and listen to them. They're online. You have to listen to them because I can't continually re-preach what has been preached and all of that is necessary for getting the most out of every sermon. So I, I commend the recordings of the sermons to you. So I have to do some context if we're going to have any hope of understanding today's text. And I want to start this context in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul says in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that is, all of us who have gone through water baptism, we've, we've identified ourselves with Christ Jesus by water, water baptism. Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that was signifying that we were baptized into his death? What Paul is saying there is profound. I, again, I can't re-preach it, but in short, in conclusion, when you, are, when you put your faith in Christ, God unites you with Christ on the cross, and you, you actually die with him on the cross. And you're buried with him. Verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. This is beyond metaphysics. 
metaphorical. Now, we know that our bodies don't go back in time, but somehow God, God pinches your life when you're called and pinches Christ's life on the cross and he unites us. So that we're actually in some way present with him and we're actually buried with him. We'll talk, I'll explain that a little bit more. Now, why would God do that? Why would God kill us in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? So we die with Christ and we're raised with Christ all in the same moment when we're born again. That born again language is not metaphorical. We're, we're actually born again. And what we learn about as we go through chapters 6 and 7, 6 and halfway through 7, we don't even deal with our desire to sin. It's all about our perfect righteousness in our new nature. So you go down to verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slave of sin, that is, your, your nature was sin in your heart. So you who were by nature sinners in your heart, Slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So your heart dies, that is, the heart is the center of your person, your immaterial person, and is born again. And when your heart is born again, there's no sin nature left. You're free from sin in your heart. It's crucial. And for all of chapter 6 and half of chapter 7, Paul just explains that. Finally, the second half of chapter 7, Paul says, well, what about this continue lingering desire to sin? What about that? Get down to the end of chapter 7, verse 25. This is where I'm going to recap very quickly what Blair did for us last week. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In chapter 7, what we see Paul doing is he's saying there's, there's two Pauls. Now, he's responsible for both Pauls, and they're both him. But there's the inner man, and there's the outer man. There's the heart, and there's the flesh. There's the mind, and there's the body. These are all different ways of saying two, basically there's two Pauls. There's the inner man which has been died with Christ and been raised with Christ and is holy and righteous. And then there's the outer man which is his flesh which still has a propensity to sin, a desire to sin, an ability to sin. And so Paul says, for example, throughout the second half of chapter 7, it's no longer I who sin but the sin that dwells in me that is sinning. Now, he's not saying that he's not responsible for his sin. He's saying that in my inner man, I'm not sinning. It's in my outer man that I am sinning. You have to see these two parts of Paul. And, and he goes on to another place, and he says, well, here, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So saved Christians are complex beings. We have already died in our inner man and come back to life, but our outer man has not died yet. And so there's a struggle. The struggle is not inside the heart. We don't have divided hearts. The struggle is between the inner man and the outer man, the heart and the flesh. 
John, in the book of Revelation, says that those who are not saved have to die a second death. Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill both body and soul in heaven. So just from those two references, John in Revelation, Revelation 20, and Jesus in the gospel, we find out that every human being has to die twice. What are these two deaths? Well, it's the death of the spirit, the soul, the inner man, and the death of the body. The Christian has already accomplished one of two deaths. For those of us who are in Christ, those of us who believe in Christ, our hearts, our inner man, our mind, whatever word you want to put on it, the, the center of who we are, our soul, has already died and been raised with Christ that we might walk in newness of life. So do we have a future death coming? Yes, for our bodies, but not for our inner man. That's accomplished. So we have one death down, one death to go. But the the hardest death is the death of the heart. That's the one that hurts the most. Jesus says, don't fear somebody who can just kill your body. That's nothing. Fear him who can kill your soul. Well, God has already killed us by nailing us with Christ to the cross, and he's raised us up with Christ, the harder death is already done. It's really crucial that we see that. That leads us into chapter 8, verse 1. And here in verse 1, basically what Paul says is there's no future death for the inner man. That death is done. This condemnation, don't look at it through the the prism of justification. You're no longer held uh, guilty for your sins. It's, you're not going to die. You're not going to be condemned to death. Your inner man will not be condemned to death. He has already died. And I'm using the male pronouns because that's what the Bible does, but this is true for men and women. So your inner man, if you're in Christ, you've already died. You're not going to die twice. So when your body stops working... Well, your, your inner man doesn't die. You go to heaven and you're alive. You're, you're fully alive. That's verse 1. Verse 2, Paul is going to explain this. It's, it is a principle that sinners have to die. But it's also a principle that the law can't kill you twice. The inner man has already died and been raised by the Spirit with Christ. Therefore, because the Spirit has given you life, He's already united you with Christ in Christ's death and already united you with Christ in your inner man with Christ in His resurrection, the principle there is then you're already on the other side of death. You're not going to die again. The spiritual death has come and gone. It's over. You're in eternal life. Because the law can't kill you twice. Verse 3, God did this by putting our sin, by putting us in the sinless man, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died, as I said, we died with him. The law killed us, killed our inner man on the cross. When did you die? Two answers. When Jesus died, you died with him. Second answer is you were united with him effectively when you came to faith. And somehow God just takes you back in time and nails you to the cross in that moment. Verse 4, Therefore, our raised inner man now lives according to righteous requirements of the law. And and just take a look at verse 4. Blair did a great job of highlighting this. 
in order, so why is it that we had to die and come back to life again in Christ? And why did Jesus have to do that for us? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not in Christ, that's a given, but in us. If your inner man has died and been raised with Christ, your inner man is fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. It's crucial. Therefore, the inner man that has been raised to life doesn't sin. It is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me. Where do we sin? In the flesh, not in the heart. Now, I know that for those of you who have been tracking, this is a bit redundant, but it's so complicated, it's necessary to remind you of it if we're going to have any hope of understanding where we're going. So this about catches us up. But this does create a tension. How do you know if your desire for sin is coming from your flesh or your heart? Because that's crucial to answer that question. If your desire for sin comes from your heart, you're not saved. If your desire to sin comes from the flesh, then you're saved and you're at war within yourself. How can you tell the difference between the two? That's really hard. We don't even know ourselves. And that's what Paul is going to answer here. This is why I had to review all of that, because otherwise none of this makes any sense. How can we know that we're saved? Because I desire to sin, and so do you. And when I sin, it is delicious on the tongue. But it sours in my spiritual belly. But let's let's not lie. We all still love to sin in our flesh. Unless you love to sin in your heart, in which case you're not saved. Well, how can we tell the difference? That's this text. So today's text can be divided into four parts. And it's all answering that question. How do you know that you have a new heart that is perfectly righteous when you also desire to sin? Part one of today's text is verses five and six. And here Paul sketches out again for us two kinds of humanity. There are two kinds of humanity, actually three if you include Jesus. So we'll look at that, verses five and six. Part two of today's text, the first kind of humanity lives in the flesh. That's verses seven and eight. The second kind of humanity lives in the spirit. That's verses nine to 11. And then all of that is going to be uh, in indicatives. There's no commands there. It's just, Paul's just explaining the reality to us. And then we get the command in verses 12 and 13. If you are the second kind of humanity that lives in the Spirit, live like that. It's the only way you can be sure. Let's take a look. Two kinds of humanity. Uh, take a look at verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. First thing I want to note about these verses is do you see the word mind repeated over and over and over again? When When we think of mind, what do we think of? We think brain. That's not what Paul is thinking of. It's not brain. It's heart. Your brain is a physical part of your body that does computations. 
but it is controlled by your mind, which is an immaterial part of your being which dwells in your heart. We have to, we have to get that if we're going to understand any of Romans 6 through 8. That's why back up in verse 25, I serve the law of God with my mind, not with my brain, but with the center of my soul. My inner man, my heart, my mind serves the law of God. I love the law of God, and I always want to do the law of God, and I am never in agreement with my flesh when I fail to do the law of God. That's what Paul is saying in verse 25. It's not coming from the brain. In fact, the brain can be our worst enemy because the brain is part of the flesh. So we need to control the brain with the mind that is in our heart. So as we're going through here, what do we know about the flesh? Well, we know that the flesh... Sorry, I I skipped ahead. The first kind of humanity here, as described, are those who live according to the flesh. They set their mind, that is their inner man, on the flesh. There's no war between their inner man and their outer man. Do you see that? There's no struggle. There's no battle. Let me just read that over and, and look at these verses through that lens. Those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. There's no battle. Their inner man agrees with their flesh, their outer man. They're in accord. But those who live according uh, to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Okay, so two kinds of humanity. Those who live according to the flesh, all they have is the flesh. Their hearts are uncircumcised, unclean, dead stones. The law of God is not written on it. And their heart, their inner man, desires sin, which their flesh also desires. Therefore, they set their minds, their inner man, their hearts, on the things of the flesh. This is all that they can do. Now, there's a second kind of humanity. So remember, in these verses, Paul's just sketching out the two kinds of humanity. The second kind of humanity is those who live according to the Spirit. And they set their mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. So there's a battle there. They have a new mind, a new inner man, a new heart. These are all different words for the same thing. The core of who they are is different. And they don't agree with their flesh, they agree with the Holy Spirit. That's another way of saying that they have a righteous heart. They set their heart, their mind, their inner man is in accordance with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit always agrees with God. The Holy Spirit loves the Father and loves the Son. The Holy Spirit loves the law of God. And so those who are in the Spirit, that is those who are saved, they agree with the Holy Spirit in their inner man. Their hearts have been circumcised. What does that mean? Well, the sin nature has been cut out and thrown away. All that's left is righteousness. Their hearts have been made clean. Their heart of stone that can't pump has been replaced with a heart that can pump spiritual blood. And the law is written on them. 
What's also implicit about these verses is that they have the indwelling Holy Spirit, that their heart walks or is in the Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in these people. Therefore, the only thing that they can do, that which is natural to them, that is, that which is in accordance with the very nature of their inner person, is that they agree with the Spirit. Now, notice there are no imperatives here. He's just describing two realities. He's not exhorting us toward any behavior. He's just trying to tell us that there are two kinds of human. There are those whose inner person is still corrupted by sin, and there are those whose inner person has been made new. And those who have been made new, they do not agree with their flesh. They do not desire sin in their mind which is also their heart or their inner man, the core of who they are. I said that there's three kinds of human. So on earth today, there are two kinds of human. Those who are at war within themselves, their heart against their flesh, and those whose hearts and flesh are in perfect agreement. The third kind of human is Jesus, who has a glorified soul and a glorified body. And there's no struggle. He's perfect and glorious. And that's where we're going in the weeks ahead ourselves. So Paul now is going to talk about each of these kinds of humanity in greater detail. So first, the first kind of humanity, those who live according to the flesh, those for whom there is no struggle between their inner and outer selves. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What do we know about the flesh here? Well, these verses say that the flesh hates God. The flesh hates God's law, and it will not and cannot submit to God's law. The mind that is set on the flesh, remember, mind is not the brain, it's the inner Man, the inner person, your inner self, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That means the sin nature has not been transformed. There has not been a death interior to yourself. And your, your heart is still corrupted. It agrees with the flesh. It hates God. It does not submit to God's law because it hates God's law. And it cannot. It, it is unable a person whose heart has not died and been born again cannot and will not obey God's law. Therefore, they cannot please God. It is impossible. They are enemies of God. They are rebels. They hate God, His law, and they, and they cannot please God in any way. So how do you know if you're saved? This is a very helpful verse. Are you hostile to the God of the Bible? Deep down, do you love God or do you hate God? An interesting litmus test for this, and that this is not foolproof, but do you find that you need to make excuses for the God of the Old Testament to yourself and to others? Well, you know, God cleans himself up in the New Testament. He's a lot more loving, gentle, kind, which is not true, actually, but have you, have you ever found yourself doing that even to yourself? 
you know, God couldn't possibly have commanded Joshua to take the Israelites into the promised land and destroy the Canaanites because a good God wouldn't do that. I would say if, if that's where you're at, you might hate the God of the Bible. That's just, it, just a litmus test. That's not definitive. It may be that you don't fully understand the God of the Bible, and that's something different. So it's tricky. But I think it's worth asking yourself the question, do you love the God of the Old Testament? Because the God of the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ, and he is the God of the New Testament. He is one God. He doesn't change. So if you don't like God, it doesn't matter how religious you feel or how religious you look, how religious you seem, how Christian you come across to yourself and others, if you are hostile to God, if you don't love God, God as he revealed himself, then you might still be in the flesh. There are many forms of hostility. There's, there's the plainness, which is downright hatred. I would doubt that there's anyone in here that thinks that they hate God, but it's worth probing that if you feel you have to make excuses for God's behavior, you might actually hate him. Or there's uh, another form of hostility of God is just indifference. I don't know. Like, <laughs> there might be a God. There might not be a God. I don't really care if there's a God. God doesn't matter to me, and I don't matter to God. And we can make that sound really spiritual. I'm spiritual. I believe that there's a force out there, and I believe that he is, or no, you wouldn't say he. I believe that it is the, the beginning of all kinds of things, and without it, then the universe falls apart. And I just pray to the universe. There, there is this cavalier indifference to the God of the Bible that can be made very spiritually sounding. But if you're indifferent to God, then you are hostile to God and you hate God. There's another form of hostility to the God of the Bible, and that's the, uh, the religiosity approach to God. That is, I don't really know God, but I am really good at keeping rules. And when I keep rules, I feel better about myself. And if I can just go through a certain pattern of ritual, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, then I feel like I've done something that has put me at a place of peace and contentment. And you know what God says about that? I hate your new moons and your Sabbaths and your festivals. I hate them. Now he commanded them, so he doesn't really hate them, but what he's saying is if, if your commitment to God is mere religiosity, God hates it because you hate him. You're in love with the ritual and not with the God who gave us the ritual. So these are just some examples that I give to you, you, but this is really critically important for you to ask yourself, do you love the God of the Bible? Not do you love God because you can make God in your own image. Do you love the God of the Bible, the God that has revealed himself as he has revealed himself? Do you, another th question, are you saved? Another question that you can ask yourself is, do you hate God's law? So many Christians, so-called Christians, hate God's law, and they, they sound pretty spiritual hating on God's law. 
Because we're New Covenant believers after all. We, we don't need God's law. There's many different ways to hate God's law. There's antinomianism. This is an absolute rejection of God's law. Live and let live. I've been set free. It's all grace. It's a misunderstanding of grace. But it's all grace. I can live like any other unsaved person because God's grace has saved me. I don't have to do anything. I, I can go out and sin with the worst of them. I can sin so that grace may abound because God has put me in a new covenant. I'm in the covenant of grace, not in the covenant of law. No. That means you hate God's law. And here, if you remember, it says it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Because it doesn't want to. Now, this is a different sermon. What do we do with God's law? We're not, we don't live under God's law like old covenant believers. But we love the law and we live out the depth of the law as it has been fulfilled in Christ. And I can't explain that anymore to you this morning. But if you find that you hate God's law, then you hate the one who gave the law. And as religious as you might find yourself to be, you are still in the flesh, or might be. Then there's legalism. Legalism goes to the other extreme. This is another way to be hostile to God's law, and that's adding to God's law. That is, I'm just going to add a few more laws, and if we keep the laws that I've come up with, then we won't be in danger of breaking God's laws. It's like fencing the law. So, so you know, it, as a parent, I get this. If there's a cliff there, I say, stay well back from the edge. I fence the cliff for my daughter so she doesn't fall off. That's the impulse of legalism. The problem is legalism puts a fence around the law, whereas someone who loves the law wants to get as close to the center. So legalists want to keep you on the outside, but if you love the law of God, you want to get to the heart of the law. So legalism actually is a hatred of God's law, dressed up as love for God's law. Another way to be hostile or to hate God's law is moralism. This is behavior modification for social respectability or prideful self-esteem. Uh, it just there's, there's enough civil peer pressure that I'm going to conform to a certain standard of morality, but if that standard ever slides and all of a sudden we have a different corporate civil understanding of morality, I'll just go with the crowd. And we see that in our world today. That's moralism. And so long as I'm in the majority, the moral majority, I feel good about myself. And so as God's coming grace rescinds, uh, that that line of morality becomes more and more evil. But if you go back in time, you know, we all know those, those sweet ladies or, or men who, who didn't believe in Jesus, but they were upstanding citizens. That's just because they were conforming themselves to the moral standard of the day. But their heart wasn't regenerate. They were just, they hated God's law, but they, they, they conformed by God's common grace to the moral standards of the day. But they're not doing anything. They're not behaving in any moral way because they love God. And therefore, they cannot please God, even if they're morally upright, deeply moral people according to our barometer in society. 
So what do we know about those who are only of the flesh? They cannot please God. No matter how good unsaved people seem from our point of view, they cannot please God because they're only of the flesh. They're hostile to God, even if that hostility is dressed up in postmodern tolerance and pluralism. In Canada, you're just a great person if you're tolerant and if you agree in pluralistic worldview. People who are tolerant and believe that all roads lead to God or, or not, doesn't matter, make your own truth, those people hate God and they cannot please God. There's a second kind of humanity. So, so if you're trying to, sorry, before we transition, if you're trying to figure out if you're saved, you want to ask yourself, is that me? Do I love the God of the Bible? Do I love his law? How do you know if you love God's law? How do you know if you love the God of the Bible? This is where it, it can be objective. Now we have to be careful because we can have our own little micro peer pressure for social conformity. But truthfulness. I demonstrate to myself first and to you second that I love God and I love his law by the fruit of my life. If I love God, I want to please him. If I love his law, I want to do it. So, is that evident in my life? Is that evident in your life? Another way to answer this question, because this, this is tricky, I understand that. We're all works in progress, so ask the, yourself this question, how have I changed in the last year? Have you changed in the last year? If you are exactly the same as you were a year ago, maybe that's not a problem, but what about five years? Have you changed in five years? Have you changed in 10 years? If, if you haven't changed in 10 years, be very frightened for your salvation. God doesn't just let you coast for 10 years. That, to me, signifies that you're of the flesh. You're not of the Spirit. Because if you're of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is very patiently, very tenderly, but very consistently saying, you've got to work on this. It's time to get rid of that. Let's develop here. Let's get stronger there. So do you know what God is working on in your life right now? If, if I was to come to you after the service and say, what aspect of your life have, has God been working on in you? Do you have an answer? Because if you don't, it's problematic. It's not, that's not the way that God walks with us. He walks with us by pointing things out. And we're not perfect, and we're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for a general walk with the Spirit. Second kind of humanity lives in the Spirit. Take a look at verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's a big qualifier. He's saying, look, I'm going to give you, Romans, the benefit of the doubt there at the church, you're not of the flesh, you're in the Spirit, but if, that's only if, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Translation, 
Anyone who does not have the indwelling Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit of Christ, that is, the Holy Spirit, is not saved. If you have never, ever experienced fellowship with the Holy Spirit, that's a problem. And we can't just be the frozen chosen. I don't, you know, the Trinity is God, Jesus, and the Bible. No, that's not the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you don't know Him, that's a problem. And this one triune God has given us His Word. But the Bible is not part of the Godhead. It comes from God. So, if you have the Spirit of God, then you're saved. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, and what, what he means there, Jesus is up in heaven, but if Christ is in you, by, mediated by the presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, then you are the second kind of humanity. You're saved. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you're the first kind of humanity. Now, Paul goes on in verse 10 and talks about the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, in your Bible, Spirit there might be capitalized. I don't know if it should be capitalized or not. Because you have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, but then he says, your body is dead, but the Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit, or is it your immaterial self, your inner man? I'm not sure, exegetically, to be honest with you. And I think maybe that's the point, that the indwelling Spirit is so one with your Spirit that He makes your Spirit alive. So it's, it's maybe not an either-or, but a both-and. So here's the point, and this goes back to, to the whole problem uh, of trying to discern if we're saved. Our body still has to die because of sin. So because our bodies didn't die and come back to life on the cross with Jesus, God just took our heart and nailed it to the cross, and so our inner man has died and come back to life. Our body still has to die. We still need that death. But he says there, but your spirit which is one with the Holy Spirit, or dwelled by the Holy Spirit, is alive because of righteousness. Meaning, you know that it's alive, because, or you are alive in your spirit, because your spirit is righteous. Again, going back to this, the same things that we've been saying since chapter 6, verse 3. So again, Paul is talking about this struggle even though the body will die, your spirit is already alive. How do you know if your spirit is alive? Well, you, you have some experience of righteousness in yourself. What is that experience of righteousness? We're afraid to say that, right? Because, well, we're sinners. But we're not at our core, we're not sinners. At our core, we are righteous. 
So let me ask you the question, and this is, I guess, subjective, but underneath all the desire for sin, is there a righteous core? After you sin, how deeply do you grieve over your sin? Or do you only grieve if you're caught? Unsaved people grieve when they're caught in sin. But if you don't have to tell anyone about your sin and you are broken by it, if you hate it, if you are on your face praying to God for forgiveness because you hate this sin tendency that keeps coming up in your life over and over and over again, if you truly deeply hate it, then you've experienced righteousness in yourself. Have you had that experience? Your body is going to die because of sin. Another way of saying that, the sin tendencies are still alive in your flesh, but not in your spirit. Have you ever had a moment where you know you are interacting with God? You can't explain it, but you know it. It's crucial. We need to have those moments. Because that's the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you've never encountered God, I'm not saying you're not saved, because maybe you have encountered God and you didn't realize that that's what was happening. But if you've truly never encountered God, I, I worry for you. Because what God says in the Bible is that He will indwell you. That's an intimate relationship. The only relationship that comes even close to that indwelling is a relationship between a husband and a wife. Have you had that kind of husband-wife encounter with the God of the universe? If you have, that's proof positive of your salvation. If you haven't, maybe you just don't know you have, or maybe you haven't. Verse 11 hints at what we're going to get at in a couple of weeks. Even though our bodies have to die because of sin, God will raise it up. So, this is a little aside. Our inner man has died and been raised. Our body will die and will be raised. And at that point, we'll be fully glorious, body and soul, and there will be no tendency to sin, and we'll be like Christ. But, the force of this passage here is that's already true of your heart if you're saved. So far, Paul's been describing reality. There's been no exhortations, no imperatives. I've tried to give you some things to think about to see, are you the first kind of humanity who is in the flesh or are you the second kind of humanity who is in the spirit? If you're in the spirit, there will be a struggle between your heart and your flesh. Don't mistake that battle for being unsaved. But what you have to ask is, is there a battle? There's no battle, you're not saved. So now we come to the exhortation in verses 12 to 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So then, brothers, so then, sisters, we are debtors. We are in debt. What does Paul mean there? Because I thought Jesus paid off our sin debt. Yes, he paid off our sin debt. Therefore, we're in debt to Christ. We're not in debt to sin. We're in debt to Christ. Christ died for us. He, the Holy Spirit, united us with Christ in his death. Christ was raised for us. The Holy Spirit united us to Christ in his resurrection. Therefore, we owe him a righteous life. Jesus didn't do that so that we could just go on sinning. Now, if you're in the flesh, you can only sin and you can't please God. But if you're in the Spirit, you have the power which is in you from your heart and by the Holy Spirit to live righteous lives. If we live as if we are not saved, then maybe we are not saved. If we are saved, we must, this is the exhortation, this is how you prove your salvation to yourself and then to others. This is how you make your election sure, to use Paul's, or Peter's words. If we are saved, we must cooperate with the indwelling Holy Spirit and live from the heart. Live from the inside out, putting to death the deeds of the body. Not all at once. We don't believe in perfectionism, not until we're raised from the dead. But as much as we can, little by little, increasingly over a lifetime, we live from the heart which desires righteousness and we slowly, painstakingly, with much grieving when we fail, stop sinning. If you have no desire to stop sinning, you're in the flesh. How do I know that? Because every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Because every healthy tree bears good fruit and every diseased tree bears bad fruit. If you're saved, deep in your soul, your heart right now will be rejoicing with the word that was preached to you. Amen and amen. You will agree with what I have preached. If you are not saved, then you will want to disagree. Because your heart does not yet desire righteousness. So do you agree or do you disagree? I'm not talking about comprehension. You may not agree because you don't understand what I've said. That's different. But if you understand what I've said and you disagree, I would go to the Lord in prayer. So how can we know that we're saved? Well, have you died and been raised with Christ in your inner man? Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Have you ever encountered him personally? 
Do you recognize a genuine struggle between your heart and your flesh? Do you, can you identify deep down, it might be buried very deep, but do you identify deep down righteousness in you? Now you may have been programmed for so long in the church that there is no righteousness in you, so it may take a while for you to find that righteousness. You may have to get rid of a lot of baggage of, of preachers telling you that you're not righteous, that you're just a wretched sinner, so you may have to just like, go in with a machete to all of those weeds and overgrowth and chop it all down, and then you will discover, oh, I really am righteous at the center of who I am. But after uh, some extensive exploration, if you don't find righteousness, then you're not saved. In what ways are you still living according to the flesh? So this is for those of you who find righteousness. Okay, so I want to leave those of us who, who are saved but still have this battle between the heart and the flesh. Well, in what ways do we still struggle with sin? I want you to think of one or two strongholds that you give into consistently. I'm not even going to give you any examples. What's your sin weakness? If you are saved, do you recognize in your heart a hatred for the sin that you lust after? And if you hate it more than you love it, live from the heart and cut it out of your life. Pick one thing to cut out of your life, and when it is gone, pick another thing and cut it out of your life. Because God has made you able to do so. You are righteous, and you have the Holy Spirit, so live like it. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to know if we're saved or not. Are we righteous or not? And I know that those of us who are righteous still battle against the desires of the flesh, and we do still desire sin, and we, we do still fall into sin. And oh God, help us. Help us to remove that sin from our lives. Help us to hate it more than we love it. Help us to recognize that we already do hate it more than we love it if we are in the Spirit. And God, I pray for those here who don't know if they are saved or not. For those who are, please grant them assurance. Even while they will battle against their flesh, grant them assurance. But for those who are not, grant them conviction that they may be saved. I pray this by the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.